This evening's talk is about compassion. And beginning with a quote from American author and photographer Eudora Welty. My continuing passion is to part a curtain, that invisible veil of indifference that falls between us and that blinds us to each other's presence, each other's wonder, and each other's human plight. There's an image in Buddhism that represents the awakened energy of unconditional, boundless compassion. It's an image of a bodhisattva that's often depicted as having a thousand arms outstretched and a thousand eyes, an eye painted in the palm of each of the hands that are reaching out, a thousand eyes to see all of the suffering in the world, and a thousand arms reaching out to help. Some years ago, I attended a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. There were about 400 adults and also 30 children at this retreat. The children were off each day having their own retreat. But every morning they would come uh, and do a kind of show-and-tell for all of the adults before uh, we began our day of retreat. Each morning they would stand up in front of us and in various ways would share with us what they'd been doing, what they'd been learning during the previous day. One morning all 30 of the children came into the meditation tent where the 400 adults were sitting, and stood in a long line facing us. And then each child stretched out both of their arms with their hands facing us wide open, the palms of their hands facing us. The palm uh, of each child's, child's hand had an eye painted in it. Then one little boy went up on the platform where Thich Nhat Hanh was sitting and painted an eye in the palm of one of Thich Nhat Hanh's hands. That was the whole of their presentation to us that morning. No words, just that. It was touching, inspiring, and very beautiful. So, compassion karuna. What is it experientially? About 44 years ago, early one June morning, I heard the wake-up stirrings of one of my newly born twin sons. Holding him that morning with a very sweet tenderness passing between us, as he lay open in my arms, very relaxed and contented. And my eyes looking deeply into his face with a kind of wonderment and a curiosity. And then I suddenly felt my 
heart tremble, quiver. The vibration permeating my chest, my heart center, and then moving out through my whole body and into my mind. A feeling of connection and intimacy with him and an intimacy with life as a force, we could say. Immediately interwoven with these moments was a very deep sense that this tiny being in my arms would experience many difficult things in his lifetime. Difficult situations, many painful and bodily mental experiences within himself. A wave of the breadth of the suffering in life literally quivered through me, my whole body. In the midst of those moments of sweetness and tenderness, And some tears came, but not the aching tears of sadness that come with a sense of attachment, with the feelings of attachment. That morning the tears were more like the juice of compassion, the sense that yes, yes, this is how it is for all of us and for him as well. And that morning's experience has returned many times and in many different ways, as both a teaching and as a practice for me, within this enormous gratitude of living life immersed in the Dhamma, the gratitude that that brings. The Buddha described compassion as the trembling, the quivering of the heart in response to pain, ours or that of another being. Compassion is really the heartbeat of the Buddha's teaching. And it's one of the two wings that we learn to fly free with. The wing of wisdom of the deeply understanding the not-self, empty nature of all things, and the other wing, the wing of compassion, the heart's connection to beings, this connection that comes through a deep understanding, a knowing of dukkha, suffering, the cycle of unsatisfactoriness that runs through most of our lives, knowing its cause, and knowing the way of its end. Because our meditation practice has the power to clear away, purify the mental obscurations, the states of mind that constrict, that bind the heart, that bind the mind, Practice really makes us more keenly aware, more keenly aware of and more sensitive to the suffering in the world. So how can we bring our 
deepening sensitivity, our new awareness of dukkha, of pain, into our practice, into this path of awakening, this path of liberation. Our practice is grounded in mindfulness and investigation. Mindfulness and the clear discrimination of states of body, of mind, of heart. Connecting with what arises and seeing it clearly. It must also be grounded in the non-judgmental acceptance that the heart of metta offers us. A heart that's steeped in metta is what allows the connection of mindfulness to take place in relationship to whatever arises. The blossoming of this important capacity along the way of our training of the heart, our training of the mind, is very intimately involved with our growing capacity to compassionately meet and see the difficult, to compassionately and wisely understand the suffering that shows up in life. Compassion is a very tender, open state. And at the same time, it's a place within us of great strength, tenderness, openness, and strength. The capacity to stay present in relationship to what's going on around us and what's going on within us. And not feel overwhelmed by it. And so we gently practice maintaining our awareness of suffering. I think that most of us are pretty strongly conditioned to sweep discomfort, to sweep dis-ease, to sweep it under the rug or hide it away in the metaphoric closet or attic. Or we hide ourself away by shutting off, by maybe going to sleep, by distracting ourselves in myriad ways or maybe possibly through ignoring or trivializing suffering so that we don't see or feel the pain of others in the world, so that we don't see or feel our own pain, our own suffering. Our conditioned habits of avoidance and distraction are all based in fear. The fear that if we really recognize, connect with, and open to the pain, it will touch in too deeply and cause us more discomfort, maybe more anguish, maybe unbearable pain. The aim of compassion, karuna, practice is to move towards turning our 
developing capacity of heartful, unconditional acceptance to turn the heart, to turn the mind, specifically towards suffering in relationship to ourself and in relationship to others. And then with understanding and courage, open to, move towards the alleviation of the suffering. Through the purification of the heart, the purification of the mind that practice affords us, over time we learn to do this without getting overwhelmed by the suffering, but rather begin to feel and to know an unobstructed strength of understanding of care, courage, which is what really gives us the necessary and wholesome energy to act when that's appropriate. In cultivating the heart of metta and karuna, along with the discipline of developing mindful awareness and investigation, a whole new realm of choices insights and responses become available to us. We meet and accept what is, which is really the essence of mindfulness based in metta. And then in whatever ways might be appropriate, we're able to help able to help without any aspect of aversion creating a barrier. True compassion, or as it's sometimes called, boundless compassion, is when we have the capacity to open our heart to the suffering of all beings, which includes ourself. And in our mind, not make ourself, not make others any more important than each other. Compassion is neither strained nor is it reactive. It flows from the heart with the capacity to transform fear, the anger, the resentment, disappointment, grief, or expectation that might be present in relationship to another or in relationship to our own bodily and mental experiences. With the development and the blossoming of compassion, we're cultivating an immeasurable impartiality, what Chogyang Trumpa called a pure and fearless openness without territorial limitations. Compassion has the power to melt, to dissolve the separation between self and other, 
to dissolve the separation in the direct experience of our body, our heart, and our mind in an open-hearted and yet at the same time impersonal way and a non-identified way. It's our clinging to the idea of self, our very deeply habituated thought of a separate, solid, static self that perpetuates this painful separation or, as it's sometimes called, this painful duality. Compassion has the power to dissolve or counteract the uneasiness, the discomfort, the contraction, or the withdrawal in the face of others or in the face of our own pain, our own suffering so that we're honestly and really truly present with them and with ourselves. How different this is from the reactive patterns of anger, fear, resentment, judgment, unhealthy grief, jealousy or greed. I think many of us usually think of mental states, emotional states, as being positive or negative. As understanding deepens through our practice, we begin to know that really the most important, helpful, and true way of seeing and knowing mental states is the differentiation or the, between reaction and response. Reaction is always based on the past, on past conditioned patterns that, we're, that are always rooted in some sort of an agenda. Patterns and agendas that are always primarily associated with I, me, and mine. So consequently, really aren't connected to. Don't see, don't serve the whole reality of our present moment experience. Reaction always supports and recreates some aspect of our particular karmic predicament. It reifies habitual thoughts, actions, and Self-identification as, this is who I am. This is who you are. Compassion is a response, not a reaction, not a reaction. There's a story about Zen master Ryokan, whose brother invited him to visit his house and... Uh, speak to his delinquent son. And, of course, Ryokan went, but he didn't say any words of admonishment to the boy. He stayed overnight, and 
prepared to leave early the next morning. And as his wayward nephew was uh, sitting on the ground helping his uncle Ryokan lace up his straw sandals, the boy felt a warm drop of water touch his hand. And glancing up, he saw his uncle Ryokan looking down at him with his eyes full of tears. Ryokan returned home. And the nephew, very soon after the visit, changed for the better. Compassion training. The practice and the unfolding of karuna is challenging. It's often difficult. It means we really take to heart the Buddha's words, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And as we all know by now, the Buddha wasn't about to go on and uh, tell us the best way to suffer. We're all very well practiced in that. Nor was the Buddha recommending suffering. He was, though, pointing out that unsatisfactoriness, confusion, anguish are all intrinsic to our human condition. Or, more accurately, these states of mind are intrinsic until we wake up to the true nature of life. What he was doing, what the Buddha was doing, was pointing, pointing out the truth of its existence and that looking directly, deeply, and really honestly at the reality of suffering in our life is what leads us to take the necessary steps to free ourselves from it which in turn leads to a transformation and a relinquishment of the mental states that cause us so much anguish. During the monsoon season in Taos, New Mexico, where I live, we often have huge appearing arches of rainbows, often double rainbows. And rainbows can be very fine teachers. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. Just the right amount of moisture in the air, the light being just right. And then, of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so very quickly, in just moments. Everything in life, including what we think of as our self, all of our experiences of body and mind are really like a rainbow, merely a changing set of conditions that are totally interrelated totally contingent 
and empty in and of themselves. And it's quite obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing phenomena, both the mental and physical phenomena, our rainbow body, our rainbow mind. the suffering of grasping on, trying to hold tight to some appearing thing, then solidifying it, and then identifying it as mine, as me, as who I think I am, be it some material object, an idea, an opinion, a belief, a memory, an emotional state, a bodily experience, thinking of any of these things in any way as being in any way permanent and unchanging and identifying any of it as me, mine, I, will inevitably and eventually bring confusion and some degree of anguish. Trying to control or trying to grasp onto events, to any moments of this constantly changing life, with the nature of it all being uncontrollable, ungovernable, ungraspable, will inevitably bring suffering. It's our relationship to phenomena that brings the suffering that the Buddha speaks about being free from. I found it kind of amazing and illuminating when I began to see that as I practice, the particular objects that come into awareness don't really change much. Basically, we keep attending to the same body, mind, objects, again and again and again. It's our relationship to them that changes. And so we find out something kind of astonishing and fortunate about suffering. It itself is a conditional, totally contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. As our practice tape takes deeper root and begins to mature, we begin to see and know that liberation from suffering isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, avoided or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see, something that we ignore. In our English language, there's an aphorism that tells us ignorance is bliss. In the clarity of the Buddhist teachings, ignorance ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is just simply ignorance, and bliss is bliss. 
with in fact ignorance providing the fertile ground for delusion to sprout. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are also only impermanent conditioned states of suffering. They're not who we are. They're just one of the hues of the ephemeral rainbow. And this is a piece from uh, Stephen Mitchell, the writer and translator. It's his rendition of the Greek myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to, sh- to shoulder his rocks sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside and let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. As we begin to see more and more clearly, and at least occasionally a step aside as we continue to climb the mountain of compassion and wisdom, letting the heavy rock of our cherished habits and identities hurtle to the bottom, so to say. We're less and less often habitually, blindly caught and trapped in old patterns of suffering in relationship to life. The capacities of kindness, compassion, mindful awareness, wisdom begin to take root and to grow our heart opens. We're really, truly beginning to awaken. In relation to this, I'd like to share um, a portion of a letter that I received from a very dear friend of mine. Just had an insight about compassion recently. You might know my niece has been living with me this past year. I've had lots of conflicting emotions about this, resenting it, irritated, wanting her to leave, but something holding me back from actually telling her that. I recently realized it's compassion, compassion for a kind of young, wounded soul that I'm following through on. Compassion, I think, is bound up with integrity, I realized that if I let all my conflicting feelings and issues take over, I would be compromising my integrity, my understanding, and belief about the importance of compassion. Sometimes acting with compassion is hard work because it requires us to let go of limiting behaviors. So I'm still feeling some of those feelings, but feel very clear about my course of action. 
Life can be so rich and challenging in all of its connections to friends, parents, and children. So where does the heart's capacity for compassion and our inclination to cultivate compassion, where does this come from? The seeds of compassion within us have been planted many, many times. Every time we've experienced another being who was willing to be with us when we were in pain, every time we've been cared for, attended to, listened to, or just simply sat with when we've been sick or hurt physically or when we've been in some emotional pain. The seeds of compassion were sown. In any moment of the purity of a compassionate connection, Relationship is transformed by cutting through the me-you, subject-object dualism. Karuna is a unifying energy. The giver and the receiver are joined, not separate, in any moment of pure presence. And these moments hold and carry a particular energy of the heart, the particular energy of compassion. And then plant the seed of this energy in the receiver. And for most of us, this happens many, many times throughout our life. And so we have many seeds to cultivate through our practice. And of course, we, in turn, plant many seeds. Every time we remain present with another being who's suffering, who's in pain physically or emotionally, a seed of compassion is planted. And the seed of karuna within our own heart is watered and fertilized and grows. Every time we wholesomely respond rather than react, both internally and outwardly, to a difficult or a painful set of circumstances, a seed of compassion is planted, and the seeds of karuna within our own heart grow. And sometimes the learning curve can be quite steep. The emotional or physical pain facing us from another or within ourselves, asks us to step into what might be unknown territory and into an unfettered, compassionate relationship. And this can take us to the very core of our being, to the very core of our subtle, self-centered agenda. The agenda that props up the veil of a subtle or maybe not so subtle separation, duality, that maybe we've been living under forever. Living behind, we could say, forever. These 
learning curves that come our way every once in a while hold the amazing possibility for us to recognize and let go of the habitual knots that bind us, which in turn offers us the truly amazing possibility of an unfettered, compassionate connection with another and with ourself as well. So looking at it this way, the interaction within every relationship has the potential of planting a seed for the arising of a clear, true presence within both beings. The interaction within every relationship has the potential of transmission. It's a circular process. We receive the seeds of compassion as a transmission, and we give the transmission to others, and also, again, to ourselves through acts of compassion. And on and on it goes, the spiraling transmission of karuna. For me, and I think for many people, an amazing and inspiring uh, contemporary embodiment, embodiment and uh, transmitter of compassion has been Mother Teresa. In a video about her life and her work, there's a short scene where she stops beside the bed of a man that has just been, who, who has just been brought in off the street and who's extremely emaciated and sick. And she gets down on the floor next to him very closely and looks very directly into his eyes and then just simply lays her hand over his heart. And he looks very directly right back at her. And for those few moments, the appearance of the enormous suffering in his face changes completely into light and love a few moments of a gentle and very powerful transmission. Within the heart of compassion, there's a great strength and trust in our ability to bear witness and face whatever it is, to be with what is, without wanting it to make it disappear, without ignoring it or repressing it, or pretending, in fact, that something else is happening. Aversion to pain, ours or another's, says, I can't stand this, I can't bear this. I can't bear this feeling. And it's so important when this comes up in the heart to connect to the aversion, to connect to it with a mindful awareness that's based in the non-judgmental connection and acceptance of metta, meeting the reactive state of mind, the reactive pattern that's arising with open-hearted mindfulness. 
This is the attention that connects. This is how it is right now. This is fear. This is anger. This is what's happening in this moment. And this is how it is. It's really important to recognize our limits without self-judgment, however they might show up in the process of the cultivation of compassion. Karuna is never developed by force. It's appropriate and natural to back off from painful experiences at times in our life, in our practice. Kindness and gentleness with ourself is an important and necessary aspect of our practice. This is karuna itself. And it's important to stay mindful in the moving away and the coming close to the opening to and the withdrawal that happens in relationship to the mental or physical or situational pain that's showing up. As it is with any object that we give a mindful attention to in our practice, our perception of the object will change as we see it more and more clearly. And consequently, our relationship to the object also changes. We need to learn to befriend ourselves, to come close and see how it is, see how it really is. It may be a strong and maybe quite intense energy, but it's not at all static or solid. Can we come so close with the intimacy of our practice and see how it really is. Can we come so close, grounded in the heart connection of acceptance and with a growing compassion, and see the various colors of the rainbow of our experience, see them really truly in themselves, and begin to see through these colors, even the strongest of colors. If a very dear friend comes to us with their troubles, we usually give them attention. We give them care in some way. We don't usually tell them to stop feeling what they're feeling or tell them to go away from us in the midst of their suffering. Our practice teaches us how to befriend ourselves, which quite naturally leads to the development and the blossoming of a connection with all beings. And we come to know, we come to really know, that the pain in our heart or the pain in our back essentially isn't different from the pain in the heart or the back of any being anywhere in this world. 
For most of us, our hand really quite naturally and quite spontaneously often reaches out to soothe the ache in our own foot or our back or our heart. What is it that sometimes holds us back from spontaneously responding to the suffering of another in this same simple and natural way? Essentially, this is due to a deeply conditioned and almost visceral clinging to the idea of being a separate self. As long as we're immersed and blindly living out of this fixed idea, spontaneous concern for others will most often primarily be felt for those who fall into the range of who we think of as mine. And there may even be some degree of indifference or maybe even a more overt aversion in relationship to the pain of those outside of this range of mine. As our heart opens and our understanding deepens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. As our heart opens and our understanding begins to mature, connection and empathy blossom. Our sense of being a closed cell dissolves. It's not that I or me vanishes into some bottomless hole of nothingness. Instead, we discover that we're really, truly a cell that forms part of the, what to quote Stephen Batchelor says, the interdependent multicellular organism of existence itself. I, the sense of I, only exists in relationship to you. I, me, it's not eliminated. Me is transformed. There's only relationship. I, me, you, them, us have never and will never exist in isolation. Have never and will never exist in any solid, static, separate way. The notions of me and you, the seemingly fixed conceptual distinctions of me and you, begin to dissolve with the blossoming of metta and karuna. Begin to dissolve in in relationship to the way that we go about our life. 
how we relate in this life. Spontaneous, empathetic response begins to emerge quite naturally, more and more often. We begin to really understand in ourselves, so to say, that the needs of I and me are no more important than those of you. This is really the birth of unconditional kindness and compassion. And some words from the 8th century Buddhist monk Shantideva. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And yet, as we know, it's not so easy, this relating to others and even to ourselves, with the clarity of a pure, compassionate heart. We have many old and seemingly new agendas. We have many deeply conditioned habitual patterns. I think that for many people there's some confusion in relationship to the difference between pity and what can be described as an unhealthy grief and compassion. Both of these energies, pity and grief, are what's called the near enemy or what looks like or what masquerades as compassion. Pity actually touches pain with fear instead of mercy, instead of a really true, open-hearted, caring presence. Pity is a subtle form of aversion. It manifests as a contraction away from, a withdrawal, if we look really carefully at it. When we pity, there's a subtle or not so subtle, wanting it to be different. And also maybe some feeling that I'm glad it's not me that's suffering so much. Pity then tinged with a certain taste of arrogance. But an arrogance that's actually a cover-up for our fear and our inability at that particular moment to be with the suffering that we're encountering. The energy of unhealthy grief is fraught with self-centeredness. It's a very self-obsessed energy and can lead, can lead one into depression if it goes unrecognized. One can get caught and 
lost in the downward spiral of this strong and deep contraction, which if we clearly see it, we find that it's actually a fixation on the idea of a separate, solid me and a separate, solid you. This fixation can often be a strong component in the midst of an unrecognized, unhealthy grief. When we feel pity in ourself, for ourself, or when we're caught in the self-obsession of an unhealthy grief, in those moments we're really not experiencing any true caring or kindness or compassion for ourselves. But rather we're caught in a kind of sticky, sinking feeling, that heavy ache of feeling sorry for ourselves that poor me with a capital M-E feeling. And in this place, there's really not much, if any, capacity towards acting uh, to care for ourselves. So again, within the natural spaciousness of a non-judgmental, mindful awareness, Can we practice acknowledging and coming close to our experiences of body and mind? Letting go of relating to experience through the veil of concept, through the veil of identification. Myself as a pitiable, pitiful person. But rather the possibility of Here's pity. Here's grief. This is what's arising. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not who I am. But it's come up. How is it? Mindfulness and compassion are necessary companions on this path to awakening and in the seeming magic that can happen when they work together. We might be surprised at any moment by the arising of compassion in what might feel like a most unlikely circumstance. Compassion arising in a most unexpected moment and in a most unexpected way. I'd like to share a piece from my diary that comes from my participation in the first Bearing Witness Retreat that Roshi Bernie Glassman held in Poland in November of 1996 at the Auschwitz concentration camp. It's well into the second month of offering the Buddha Dhamma here in Poland. Tomorrow begins a few days away from my teaching duties. I'll take a train and go to the remains of the concentration camp at Auschwitz. It's American Thanksgiving. Bernie Glassman Roshi has organized the first bearing witness retreat 
as we slowly walk through the camp on this first harsh, gray November morning, I'm aware of two distinct qualities of energy that seem to permeate the atmosphere, the land, the buildings, imbuing every aspect of Auschwitz that we come into contact with. The first of these is an enormous depth of sadness, an incredible heaviness and heartache that's palpable. It's everywhere, in and emanating from everything. It brings tears from the eyes of the many of the 140 people attending this retreat. The stacks, the stacked bunks and open sewer living spaces of the prisoners, the shocking photos of children and displays of their shoes, clothes, and toys touch my heart to a depth almost too much to hold. The other quality of energy is amorphous, yet also palpable. It's in the atmosphere and at moments in my body and heart. It manifests like waves of razor-sharp edginess and tension, moments of touching what feels like insanity. This is even harder to let fully in than the immense sadness, as it's, far less, it's a far less familiar feeling and thus less comfortable. There's a sense of not wanting to get too close to, this, to whatever this is. The sorrow and the heartache are immediately understandable to me, but I'm not so easily comprehending the atmospheric, almost terrifying tension, the raw discordance and alienation, until one afternoon I find myself alone on my knees in front of an oven where the bodies of those murdered by the Nazis were burned. Tears stream from my eyes, and Om Mani Padme Hum, the Tibetan mantra of compassion, spontaneously repeats out loud from my heart for the Nazis. A deep, intuitive understanding of utter insanity and the untenable suffering therein is fathomed. The depth of disconnection, separation from life, from oneself, the unmitigated alienation that one would have to be living in, living with, in order to murder one, let alone millions, is recognized. My heart cracks open with this recognition. In the midst of this unforeseen insight, my whole being is flooded with unconditional compassion, not for the actions of the Nazis, but for the actors. Since that Thanksgiving retreat, I've been deeply aware that just as each one of us has the capacity to help others from the heart of compassion, every one of us also knows at least moments of disconnection, separation from life, from ourselves, and the unmitigated alienation and utter insanity, untenable suffering therein. I know now so much more clearly that if one identifies with this experience as I, me, mine, and mires into this self-identification, this place of great existential suffering, it can lead to outward actions that in turn cause suffering for others, as happened to such an extreme degree in Auschwitz. Since the days in Auschwitz, I'm feeling enormous gratitude that somehow all of the opportunities and blessings have been in place for me to connect with these teachings and practices, which are the best medicine. 
for all wounds. A couple of years after I returned from Poland, this story was put into a newsletter that the Taos Meditation Group sent out. And I'd like to share a response that I received from an Israeli student, an Israeli Dhamma student, who has also been involved uh, in Israeli-Palestinian peace initiative work. And this is what she says. Thank you for the newsletter you sent me. I would like to ask your permission to translate your article about compassion to Hebrew for the Sangha here. We seem to need to be reminded of this quality, especially now when we're facing such difficult times. I was deeply touched reading in your diary about the compassion you expressed for the Nazis. It was very hard for me to understand. From my early childhood, I saw the horror and the pain of the faces of the people who survived and were parents or grandparents of friends of mine. They and other people told us every year stories from what they have experienced. I felt as if they wanted us to carry the horror with us forever. I remember once I took a a night train from Copenhagen to Amsterdam and was not aware of the fact that the train had to go through Germany. I went to sleep and was awakened when the train stopped at the border and a German policeman came and asked for my passport. I was never so terrified. I felt all the blood in my veins froze. After a while, I fell asleep again, and I had a dream. In my dream, the train had to stop, and the policeman asked everybody to step down from the train. I refused, saying again and again that I'm not allowed to tread on German soil. Finally, I took some books that were in my bag and put them on the ground and very carefully made my way. Then I woke up. I think only then I realized how deeply I was influenced by the stories I heard as a child. I cannot even bear the thought of going to Poland. I'm too frightened to even think about it. From this state of mind, I tried to connect what you experienced. I felt that it's very important for me to be able to make such a transition. A few days later, I watched on TV a regular video that Hamas is broadcasting after each terrorist act. A young man with guns in both of his hands, a flag, and the book of the Quran explained that he's ready to give up his life and kill as many Israelis as possible. His eyes were empty. Life, his, others, any life, has no meaning for him. For him, I began to cry. Then I thought, maybe this was the unconditional compassion you were expressing. I could connect to this now. And some words from Vimala Thakkar. Uh, an Indian spiritual master who was a longtime student of Krishnamurti's. She's been described as embodying the essence of enlightened consciousness and social responsibility. And this is what she has to say. We are at odds with ourselves internally. We believe that the inner is fundamentally different from the outer, that what is me is quite separate from the not me, 
that divisions among people and nations are necessary, and yet we wonder why there are tensions, conflicts, wars in the world. The conflicts begin with minds that believe in fragmentation and are ignorant of wholeness. When we come face to face with the actualities of human and planetary suffering, what does this powerful moment of truth do to us? Do we retreat into the comforts of theories and defense mechanisms, or are we awakened at the core of our being? And so these two wings of awakening with which we fly free, the wing of wisdom that comes out of our experiential insight into the emptiness, the not-self nature of all conditioned things, and the other wing, the other wing being compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, and our way of being in this world that ensues from this. This swing of awakening arising out of a clear and deep seeing and knowing of dukkha, its root cause and the way of its end. In reflecting on the lineage of these amazing teachings that we've inherited down through the centuries, from our teachers and their teachers and their teachers' teachers, all the way back to the Buddha. This heartfelt wisdom lineage of the extended Dhamma family. If it wasn't for the wing of great compassion, we wouldn't have these teachings available to us today. I always find it really interesting and helpful and inspiring to read the Buddha's words about himself, his speaking about his own humanness, which he even spoke about in relationship to his process of awakening. In one of his discourses, we find him with a small group of bhikkhus, sharing with them what his thoughts were soon after his awakening. And these are the Buddha's words. This dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It's hard for such a generation to see this truth. If I were to teach the dhamma, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Enough with this teaching the Dhamma that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse Dhamma, which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. And then the Buddha goes on to say, considering thus, my mind inclined to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. He then tells his monks that soon after this, a certain Brahmin came to him and pleaded. And this is the Brahmin, these are the Brahmin's words. The world will be lost. The world will perish since the mind of the Tathagata 
accomplished and fully enlightened, inclines to inaction rather than to teaching the Dhamma. Venerable Sir, let the Blessed One teach the Dhamma. Let the Sublime One teach the Dhamma. There are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand the Dhamma. And then the Buddha goes on with his monks. Then I listened to the Brahmins pleading, and out of compassion for beings, I surveyed the world with the eye of a Buddha. Surveying such, I saw beings with little dust in their eyes, and with much dust in their eyes, with keen faculties, and with dull faculties, with good and bad qualities. I saw beings easy to teach and hard to teach, and then I replied to the Brahma, out of compassion for beings, open to them are the doors of the deathless. Let those with ears now show their faith. Thinking it would be troublesome, O Brahman, I did not speak the Dhamma, subtle and sublime. So this wing of unconditional compassion, profound, subtle, and in itself, obviously, also not so easy to reach in its fullness and purity. Karuna so honestly and so clearly spoken about in the Buddha's description of his own awakening. It's really the wing that connects the absolute understanding of not-self, emptiness, to the relative nature of our humanness. One way to look at this that I think can be helpful in understanding it is this. To know emptiness means that we know directly that life is only in the immediate presence of what we experience. To know compassion means that we fully attend to what arises in experience because it's all we know and can ever truly know. And let's sit together for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.